I have something to tell you. I want you to lean forward and listen. It's just between you and me. No one else will know. Are you ready? I love you. Somebody say amen. amen. Why do I always have to beg? This is not the Christian way. I love you. For two reasons. One reason, John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Let me tell you why I know I love you. Verse 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. When you consider how tough the message was last night, I placed my life on the line for you. That's love. How many of you found it tough to take? Can I see your right hand? It was tough. How many of you were angry with me? Raise your left hand. Mm-hmm. We have some honest vegetarians to the right and the left. Do you still love me? Even though you don't know what I will say tonight. Do you love me by faith? All right. The just shall live how? By faith. Before I plunge into my message in the 40 minutes I have, let me make something clear from last night. It was brought to my attention that some people left with the impression that I said, if you are married to a non-Semday Adventist, get a divorce immediately. I did not say that. I exempted those who were married and no one else. Let me tell you something quickly. I am a Seventh-day Adventist preacher. I am not a Baptist preacher. God bless all Baptists. I am not a Lutheran preacher. God bless all Lutherans. I am not a holiness preacher. God bless all holiness people. I am not a Mormon preacher. Therefore, you should expect me to say things that you would not hear anywhere else. Does that make sense? You all look tough. So I know you can take what I'm about to tell you tonight. Let me get something off my chest again. Should I? Should the Christian be concerned about the influence he or she exerts? Yes or no? Yes. As you conduct yourselves... Uh, over this weekend, should you be careful not to mislead by your behavior, yes or no? Yes. Historical sketches, page 143, paragraph 5, Ellen White writes, We are all woven together in the great web of humanity, and God holds us responsible for the influence we exert on others. Listen to what bothered me. Gathered before me, is a mingling of married people and single people. Married people are allowed certain physical rights. Denied the single, Christian. Somebody agree with me. But in the spirit of being concerned 
with your behavior's influence on others. In the spirit of Paul, who in 1 Corinthians 8.13 said, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no meat while the world standeth, lest I cause my brother to offend. Paul was willing to set aside certain things in the interest of the spiritual welfare of his brothers. Now, let me get to the thing, because you are eager to find out. There's nothing wrong in holding hands. Innocent, simple. But when it comes to caressing and fondling and kissing, am I out of place to politely request that you reserve that to your suite? There are single people on the hunt. And when they see you engage in this behavior, it may stir reactions in them that are not consistent with the Sermon on the Mount or any other part of Scripture. Now, please restrain yourselves. Do I need to say more? All right. 37 minutes. Our message tonight, the mighty cleaver of truth. Favor number one, turn off your cell phones, please. Don't put them on vibrate, turn them off, please. Are you doing that? I don't hear them going off, but I accept by faith that you will obey. Favor number two, pray for me while I speak. All you need to say is, Lord, put your words in that man's mouth. Jeremiah 1, 9, then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. Simply say, Lord, put your words in that man's mouth. And favor number three, I want you with all my heart to think. Are the cell phones off? Don't send text messages in the presence of a holy God. Turn them off completely, please. Let's pray. Our loving Father in heaven, I come to you in the name of Jesus. And I plead with you, Father, to have mercy upon me and to help me as I undertake this burdensome responsibility of preaching the word. It is a spiritual task, and I am not naturally spiritual, Father. Help me through the agency of your spirit. Give me the right words. Fulfill from me the promise you made to Moses in Exodus chapter 4 verse 12 when you said to him, Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. Father, for Christ's sake, for the sake of the truth, for the sake of your honor and glory, and for the enlightenment of your people, be with my mouth and teach me what I should say. Hide me behind the cross so that you alone may be seen. I offer this prayer from my heart. In Jesus' name and for his sake, let all God's people say, Amen and Amen. In John chapter 8, reading from verse 31. John 8 verse 31. The Bible says, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be free? Now, when Jesus said, ye shall be free, the Jews listening were offended. 
They took great pride in being the descendants of Abraham. And they said, we do not understand your statement in the light of the fact that we are Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. A claim of Abrahamic uh, descent was of tremendous importance to the Jew. Still is. In Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, which gives the account of the conversion of Zacchaeus. In verse 8, the Bible says, Then Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. Christ recognized that Zacchaeus was a son of Abraham. It meant something to be a son of Abraham. In Luke chapter 13, verses 11 to 16, the account of Christ healing a woman with a spirit of infirmity 18 years when he performed a miracle, the Jews, they opposed him because it was done on the Sabbath day. And Jesus said in verse 16, And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, lo, these 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus calls her a daughter of Abraham. He called Zacchaeus a son of Abraham. The Jews were the children of Abraham and they took pride. I have a question for you. What made the Jews so special? Our subject is the mighty cleaver of truth. Let's first discover what did not make them special in the eyes of God. Let's go to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7, reading verses 6 and 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. That's what we're, we're told in Deuteronomy 7, 6. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself. This is intimacy. This is closeness. They are special to God in a very personal way. Verse 7. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. So one reason why they were not special is the fact that it was, they were not special because they were numerous. There were millions. The Bible says they were among the smallest. So they were not special to God because they were, new, they were, they were many in number. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Reading verses 6 and 7. Understand therefore, verse 6 of Deuteronomy 9, that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people or rebellious. God is saying you are not special to me because you're righteous and you're sinless and you obey my word. That's not why you're special. Verse 7. Remember and forget not how thou provokest the Lord thy God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that thou didst set foot forth out of the land of Egypt until thou came into this place, thou hast been rebellious against the Lord. God is saying through Moses, listen to me, you Israelites. For 40 years, uninterruptedly, you have been a rebellious people, but you're still my people. 
What made the Jews special to God? In Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, Paul says in, in chapter 1 that all the Gentiles are sinners. In chapter 2 of the book of Romans, he says all the Jews essentially are sinners. Now Paul is writing this and he knows that this letter will be read by Jews. So as an intelligent writer, as an intelligent church leader, Paul anticipates their objections and he answers the objection before it is made. He makes it. And so in verse, uh, chapter 3 of verse 1 of the book of Romans, the Bible says, What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Now that is a legitimate question. What makes a Seventh-day Adventist special to God? Why is it that Seventh-day Adventists, perhaps more than any other church on the face of the earth, put so much time and effort into getting other people to join their church? Those Adventists who live in countries that have winter, their evangelism period is the summer. Rest of the year. Those who live in year-round warm climates, perhaps evangelism goes on more frequently. But we have a history of evangelizing others. Am I right? Yes. Now, you need to understand why you do that. If you don't understand, you shouldn't do it. Because it causes tremendous stress and agony and anguish when some people make decisions to accept our message. Some are banished by their family members. They lose their jobs. They are ostracized by their friends. Why? What makes the Adventists special? What made the Jews special to God? Let's reread Romans chapter 3, reading verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Verse 2, much everywhere. Much. Now before we identify the much, let's skip down to verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? On a human level, is a Jew better than a Gentile? No. On a human level, is an Adventist better than a Baptist? No. Come on, say amen. You're not better than a Baptist. Or worse? What then? Are we better than they? Romans 3, 9. No, says Paul, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. And sin has one remedy, and that is Christ. The remedy works for the Jew. The remedy works for the Gentile. So there's no difference. By the way, that's how simple the gospel is. I don't care if you're Canadian, a Nigerian, a Japanese, a Russian, a Malaysian, a Martian, you have one problem. What's that problem? Sin. And there's only one solution. What's that? Christ. Does your culture change that? Absolutely not. 
What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jew and Gentiles that they are all under sin. Now let's go back to verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 3 as we continue with the mighty cleaver of truth. What advantage then have the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Verse 2, much every way. Chiefly. What does the word chiefly mean? Primarily. Principally. Of highest importance. Listen carefully and think. Chiefly. Because that entered there unto them were committed what? The oracles of God. The message, the word that God gave to the Jews is that which more than anything else distinguished them. They were distinguished by their message. Not by how holy they were. Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 9.24, Thou hast been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. And he did not know them at the beginning of the 40 years. He knew them before he went into exile. Am I going too fast? Time is going faster. What made the Jews special? The message. Chiefly, that unto them were committed, and the Greek word there for committed is the same Greek word for believeth in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that, whose, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth. It's the same word. Now you apply that to God, what it means that when God gave them the articles, God believed, God had confidence that they would carry out the message. Come on, say amen for God. Do you know God has faith in you? Now, it's not saving faith. God doesn't need to be saved. But in his own way, God has faith in you. Chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Now, what makes a Seventh-day Adventist special? Chiefly because that unto them were similarly committed the oracles of God, known in our parlance as present truth. Now, don't confuse present truth with pleasant truth. They sound alike. They are different. You see, pleasant truth, if the truth is pleasant, and truth is, you, you, uh, is there's nothing wrong with truth being pleasant. You conduct an evangelistic series, and you preach pleasant truth all night. Every night. What you end up with, possibly, is a change in the day of worship, and that's it. Last night I said there are too many Seventh-day Adventist Buddhists, and I didn't explain. Too many Seventh-day Adventist Baptists, I didn't explain. Let me explain now. Are you ready? I was watching some people walk out. What is a Seventh-day Adventist Buddhist? A Seventh-day Adventist Buddhist... <laughs> is someone who's heard the Sabbath message and has incorporated Sabbath keeping into his traditional beliefs. And he does it in an Adventist church. Baptized. You still don't understand me. Let me explain it this way. There are places where I go to preach where I have to make a call all those who've gone to the witch doctor come. All those who have charms and other little amulets in their purses, come. You know 
know why? Because even though they are Adventists, in moments of crisis, they go back to what they were brought up in. Are you listening to me? And so if things go dramatically and precipitously wrong, they go to the witch doctor. But they're Adventists. Now something is wrong somewhere. They're Seventh-day Adventist Baptists or Seventh-day Adventist Pentecostals. They're Advent members of the church by baptism in good and regular standing. But you can tell their roots by the worship styles they try to insist upon. And the urge for freedom to do as I like because God just loves me. And the preference for noise. We have Seventh-day Adventist Catholics. Don't preach this sermon. It alienates. It upsets the man of sin. Don't do that. What's the point of creating division? Let's come together. Let's be nice. But God has provided a way to cut someone out from what he or she has been accustomed to and to cut that person so completely that the person does not go back. That person becomes a Seventh-day Adventist, Seventh-day Adventist, of whom we have too few. Last day events, page 45. Paragraph 2. Seventh-day Adventists have been chosen by God as a peculiar people separate from the world by the great cleaver of truth. He has, listen to her words, he has cut them out from the quarry of the world. Now what is a quarry? A place where you go to get what? Rocks. <laughs> Something hard. The LMI tells us, he has cut them out using the cleaver of truth. He has cut them out from the quarry of the world and brought them into connection with himself. Now, you ask me, what is the cleaver of truth that God used to cut us out? Testimonies, volume 5, page 455, paragraph 2. God has called his church... In this day, as he called ancient Israel to stand as a light in the earth, by the mighty cleaver of truth, now she identifies it, the messages of the first, second, and third angels. He has separated them from the churches and from the world to bring them into a sacred nearness to himself. The mighty cleaver of truth is what God used to bring this church into existence. Because you know after the great disappointment, there were men, thousands who went back to their churches and a small group remained studying, studying, studying. God was conducting a cutting experience. He cut them out. They are your pioneers. They are your forefathers and mine. 
They who through perspiring study and sacrifice and tears, they lay the doctrinal foundation of this church. The cleaver of truth. And it is an act of betrayal to use any other kind of instrument to try to get people into this church. We must use the cleaver. Great Controversy, page 409, paragraph 1. The scripture which above all other had been both the central pillar, the foundation and the central pillar of the Advent movement was the declaration unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. It is that. Daniel 8, 14. Revelation 14, uh, 9 to 12, or 6 to 12, that comprise the cleaver of truth. Some of you are looking at me as if you're saying, what does Revelation 14, 6 to 12 say? What is Daniel 8, 14? You know what the world wants? The Bible predicted that people would not like tough sermons. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4. For the time will come what? Come on, tell me. The time will come what? When they will not endure what? Sound. Sound. Can't take it. But need it. Listen, Jesus Christ is coming back. Huh? He's coming back for people prepared. Now, you are prepared for Christ in one of two ways. You either prepare to receive him eternally or you're prepared to have him destroy you. But you must be prepared. I didn't say that clearly. Let me try it again. Christ is coming back for a world prepared. Or the world as a harvest. Revelation 14, 14 to 20. There are two harvests. One in verse 15, one in verse 18 and 19. Both harvests are ripe. Right means point of no return. Spiritually, when a man or a woman or a people reach a point of ripeness, that's it. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. He that is what? Filthy, unjust, let him be filthy and unjust still. Now the question becomes, what has to happen for the world to be brought to this place of ripeness? Where there are two harvests, ripe for God, ripe against God. I tell you today, what causes that ripening is the bold preaching of present truth, the cleaver of truth, the messages of the first, second, and third angels. Somebody who's an Adventist say, Amen. It is not Jesus loves you that the world needs alone. But that's all the world wants. Jesus loves you, now do whatever you like. He's a loving God. He won't destroy you. Well, if he doesn't destroy sinners today, he must go back and wake up all those whom he destroyed in the flood. Let me tell you something. The Jesus who died on that cross was the Christ who sent that flood. Don't look shell-shocked. Justice is part of love. The Jesus who suffered and took all kinds of abuse is the Jesus who burnt up Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela. 
The Christ who is the lamb that went to slaughter, dumb, is the one who sent an angel and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers of the army of Sennacherib to defend his people. Jesus loves, but his love compels him to punish. Christ is coming back. He is coming back for a world that is ready one way or the other. You're either ready to be received or ready to be destroyed. But either way, you will be ready. Now God has given us the readying material, the messages of Revelation 14, adding Revelation 18, 1 to 5, which is a crescendo of Revelation 14, 9 to 11, and Daniel 8, 14, out of which all of this springs. This is what prepares the world. But turn on the television, that's not what you hear. What you hear is uh, self-confidence, positive thinking, the abundant life, how to make money, how to whatever. But if you want to hear present truth, you've got to tune in to a Seventh-day Adventist broadcast. The mighty cleaver of truth. The messages of the first, second, and third angels. Now, let me just present something to you. There is something called message and there's something called method. In God's system, some things are more important than others. There are degrees in God's organization. In other words, you've got to love God more than you love your parents. Am I right? Yes, that's a degree. That's a difference. Look at the Ten Commandments. The first four, love to God. They are the first. The next six, love to your fellow man. They are the second. That's what Jesus said. Something more than something else. All are important. Some seem to enjoy a higher prominence. When it comes to preaching the message, the gospel, you have method and you have message. Are you following me? Which is more important? Come on, speak with authority. Message. Now, God is a God of method. Matthew 6, verse 9, after this manner, therefore, pray ye. Here is the method. Here is the how. How to pray. How to be saved. How to be healthy. How to raise healthy children. How to do whatever. The Bible is a book of how, how, how. It is also a book of how to preach. But how to preach is not as important as what you preach. Some of us have elevated method to such a level that it doesn't matter what you say as long as you say it a certain way. So you want to preach that the atonement was finished at the cross? That's fine, but use this method. You want to preach that the creation took more than six days, long periods of time? That's fine, just use this method. Remember Randy Skeet said, method has its place, but what distinguishes us is message. The message, what you say, that is the power. Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 186, paragraph 3. An understanding of the customs of the people, the time and location of events, is practical knowledge for it aids in making the figures of the Bible clear in bringing out the force of Christ's lessons. But it is not positively necessary to know these things. You didn't hear me. 
Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 186, paragraph 3. An understanding of the customs of people, the time and location of events, is practical knowledge, for it aids in making the figures of the Bible clear and bringing out the force of Christ's lessons. They help, she says, but it is not positively necessary to know these things. What am I saying to you? If you don't have a refined uh, background in method, don't regard yourself as useless to God. The combination that works powerfully is the message and the man. The message and the man. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, of man, but holy men of God spake. What kind of men? Holy men of God spake. When you mingle the man with the message, the woman with the message, God carries out a cutting work. And it is a message that cuts people out of the religious traditions. It cuts them out of the secularism. It cuts them out of the philosophies that are anti-God. It cuts them out of the quarry of error. But when we preach these sermons that please everybody, we cut no one out. We loosen some dirt. We cut no one out. The cutting instrument is present truth. I'm looking into your eyes and I'm not sure who is following me. But my brothers and sisters, go back to the Israelites. What made them special? Chiefly, that unto them were committed the oracles of God unto us have been committed the greatest wealth of truth ever committed to mortals. And that wealth of truth is the three angels' messages. And we have a moral and a spiritual responsibility, young and old and in between, to make this message our song, our subject, our theme, not only for preaching to others, but for the guidance of our own lives. Because what we preach to others must be demonstrated in us, that they may see the power thereof. And if we're not prepared to do that, we should leave people where they are. And not do as the Pharisees did. They traverse land and sea to make one proselyte. And when you have made him, you make him twice the son of hell as ye are, said Jesus Christ. If we're not fixed and determined to use God's method, the cleaver of truth, to cut people from the quarry of error and traditions contrary to God's word, we might as well leave them alone. GYC. I don't know why you came. Maybe it's a yearly uh, vacation, it's a rodeo, it's a time to see and be seen, time to look over the singles and see who is available and who is not and 
time to uh, wear your latest dress, your latest pants. I don't know exactly what is in your mind. God knows you know, but I'm guessing that perhaps you came for the right reasons. I want you to make a commitment. A serious one. That you will embark upon a study of present truth. You will embark upon a study of that body of truth that distinguishes this church, not because other churches cannot read it, but they cannot explain it. Because when God has not given you something, you cannot explain it. You know, people, one of my hobby horses, the Bible says that God has hidden some things from the wise. Did the Bible say that? Yes. There are some people who believe if I go to Harvard and get a PhD, then I can find out what God has hidden. My brothers and sisters, God will give you a fitness, a preparation, a level of readiness to deliver this message if you will commit yourselves to study, understand, apply, and then proclaim present truth. This is what the world needs, but the world does not know that. When Jesus preached his message in John chapter 6, he said, Eat my flesh and drink my blood. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, John 6, 54. And he went on talking about, Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And the Pharisees were offended by the message. Verse 60, Many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Verse 66, From that time many of the disciples went back and walked no more with him. They could not take it. Couldn't take it. I believe you can take it. That's why you'll come back tomorrow night. How many of you have understood the heart of my message for tonight? Can I see your hands? The heart of it. Hands down. How many of you want to contribute to the return of Jesus Christ, to hasten his coming? I'm asking these questions seriously. Get yourself acquainted with that which makes us special. Not better than, different from. What did I say? Not better than, different from. Four or three young men came to my house several years ago. They were Mormons. And they told me they are God's people. And I expressed my admiration for the gentle, soft-spoken boldness. But announced to them with equal boldness that it was my bounden duty to try to baptize them. So we left on good terms. Some Jehovah's Witnesses came to my house. Announced they were God's people. I said, let's pray. They said, uh-uh. No, we're not praying with you. They weren't kidding I said, well, let me show you the way to the next house. Groups are not afraid to say, we are God's people. But let me tell you something. This church can present a reasonable justification with biblical identifying marks why it says it is God's people. Present truth. 
given to us. What advantage then has the Seventh-day Adventists? Or what profit is there of Adventism? Much everywhere. Chiefly because that unto them were committed present truth. Revelation 14, 9 to 12. Daniel 8, 14. Revelation 18, 1 to 5. The heart and soul of present truth. Present truth means what is needed now. Noah did not preach that. That was not necessary then. The disciples didn't preach it. We have to preach it. We've got a message in its fullness those men never had. Because this is the last warning for the world. The last. When the forest fires in California, the fire department comes and evacuates people. Warns them. There was a fire alarm in this place last night. I'm told I slept very peacefully. But I heard people came down in the lobby. They were warned. We have a responsibility to warn the world. And those of us who don't, we will have blood on our hands. How many of you will say, Lord, I want to learn more about present truth. Can I see your hands? I want to know the message. Stand with me. I want to know this message, that mighty cleaver of truth that cuts people from the quarry of error and brings them into a connection with God. Enough of pleasant truth. We want present truth. Uh, every head bowed, every eye closed. Father in heaven, in the name of Jesus Christ, I ask you now to touch every honest heart. Touch every mind willing to allow your word to do its work. Touch us there, God, with an awareness of the urgency of the time and the monumental nature of the task and the size of the work. The lives that are waiting to be touched by this message that you have committed to us as verily as you committed a message to the ancient Israelites. Oh, Father, help us to be conscious that lives are in our hands. In the name of Jesus Christ, their God, put a burden on our heart first to know this message, to become familiar with this mighty cleaver of truth with which you cut us out and with which you cut others today. Through our ministry, led by your spirit, please, dear God, touch our hearts. Give us a self-sacrificing spirit that through our efforts, the coming of Jesus Christ may be hastened. Hear this humble prayer, dear God. And when you come into your kingdom, save us at last without the loss of one and those for whom we have labored. I offer this prayer in Jesus' name and for his sake. Let all God's people say, Amen and Amen. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.